Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm so excited, Sid, because we're returning to a proud Sawbones tradition of the combo. That's right, Justin. You, uh, I was going to say last week, but I guess we missed a week in there. Yes, that's true. Yes. Sorry so, about that. So sorry about that. But we're back uh, to continue. Can't you hold us back. You talked about the about VIX. I did. You gave a history of a brand. Yep. It was what medically, a treat it was. Medically relevant. Um, and that that was, for one, thank you again for doing that because you had to do more work than me for once. And uh, secondly, it led to another story that we want to tell this week. We alluded to it in the last episode, um, but it's mu- it was much bigger. It, d- it merited much more than a mention. Mm-hmm. I like the alliteration of that much sentence. Much more than a mention. Mm-hmm. It merited much more than a mention. Yes. Very good. Uh, so... That is uh, the story of another drug. We talked about VIX and their Vapo rubs and all of their other products. Mm-hmm. But VIX is part of a company, Richardson Merrill, that you talked about. Yes. And they also created another, well, they didn't create, they were bringing to market, attempting to bring to market another drug called Kevadon. Right. And this is one that we sort of like idly. I think I mentioned it in passing, so we'll return to it. And this is us returning to it. There are a lot. I just want to say before we get into Kevadon, there are a lot of wild drug names, no doubt, that that people come up with as like the brand name for something. Mm -hmm. Kevadon is way up there for me. Really? Why? It sounds like a robot Kevin. (laughs) I guess it does kind of sound like a robot. That's not where my brand immediately went to, but I guess it does kind of sound like a robot Kevin. If you heard Kevadon, would you ever think, oh, that's a pill I should put in my body? No, but I don't think I'd necessarily think robot named Kevin because what you presuppose is that Kevadon is the name of the robot named Kevin. So mm-hmm. is it named Kevin or is it named Kevadon? It's well, I think of a Kevin that becomes a robot. Okay, half Kevin, half robot, now all it hero. Is, now it is Kevadon. Yeah, Kevadon. Um, the medication Kevadon, not a hero. Okay, I don't so, want to muddy the waters. No, it had uh, already been. So, okay, before it was named Kevadon, it had other names we're going to get into. And as, as Richardson Merrill tried to get the medication Kevadon marketed and sold in the U.S., it was already being used widely throughout Europe as like a sedative, like a sleeping pill mainly. Um, it had a little bit of cure-all rhetoric around it, a little bit of like, it can help with cough, it can help with fatigue, sure. it's, a, it's a good all-around drug. Um, but mainly for sleeping and for nausea. It was an antiemetic, meaning it would stop 
puking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, unfortunately, um, there were some side effects uh, of which not many people were were aware when Richardson Merrill applied to the FDA to begin marketing the drug in the late 50s, 1950s, uh, because overseas, this drug it was known by a different name. It was not Kevadon. It was not a robot of any kind. Mm-hmm. It was known as thalidomide, mm. which you have probably heard of. Yes. It's also called thalamid sometimes or contragan. Uh, contragan. Contragan. That was the original The original thing that came out to the market in Germany was Contragan. Uh, the history of thalidomide, and this is, I'll be quite honest. For a so, change. No, I'm always honest. The But the history of this, it, it's, it's funny because I think that we figured out, I mean, as soon as thalidomide, because most people already sort of know the story that thalidomide was a drug that caused problems. And had to be removed from the market very quickly. So it was not prescribed for a very long time in the grand scheme of things. Uh, And so a lot of the problems with it and the history of it was written soon after that. Mm -hmm. But our perception of all the events and people around that really shifted when only in the last like decade or so we have learned – there have been a lot of other documents related to it, like from the companies that created these meds and from court documents. There's been a lot that has been uncovered more recently that has shifted our understanding of what ex- how did this happen mm-hmm. and who was responsible. So, and, and I want to I want to put that out there because when you're trying to research the history of this, it's really important to look at like when the article or whatever the archival piece whenever it, it was written when it was when it came out because we got some new dirt since then it shifts the narrative a bit i mean the the detail i mean like the the major plot points are basically the same but if you're if you're sitting there at the end of this going how did this happen the answer is probably a little different now than it was a decade ago mm-hmm. um and that's history it's always evolving we're always finding out new stuff mhm yeah that, that's know, true pictures always changing a little that's bit that's true we, maybe we, not to this degree though we you you think about history as a fixed thing, but it and I mean certainly the events were you know they were facts they were truths, mm-hmm. um, but because we weren't there for them our understanding of them and our perception it really depends on who's telling it right I think we've learned that many many times over in this country and every other one, um, so the history of thalidomide at least dates back to the early 1950s when a Swiss pharmaceutical company, the Chemical Industry Basel, or SIBA, developed it. Now, there's been some recent uh, discussion that this drug actually may have been developed in the 40s, specifically by German scientists in the early to mid-40s. Which would be Nazis. Nazi scientists. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of concern. Uh, there's been a lot of concern after you know more recent documents were uncovered that this drug may have been developed and used and tested by Nazis um either way it had not been brought out to the market or sold or that kind of thing until we know the 50s um the initial compound uh when the at least as far as the Swiss pharmaceutical company was concerned mm-hmm. It was not that interesting. It wasn't thought to do much. And so it was not until a German, what was initially a soap manufacturer. Really? Mm-hmm. They made soap and then they kind of got into antibiotics during World War II and we can imagine perhaps some other things. Um, they uh, did some more testing on it and found a like an active metabolite of it that was a sedative, a sleeping agent, and okay. then decided that they wanted to do something with it. 
Um, and most of the story as we move forward, uh, this uh, Kimmy Grunenthal is the company that that was responsible for bringing it to market and for a lot of what ensued. Um, the 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 bad parts, I right. should say. Uh, and and again, it is in more recent years, it has been noted that following World War II, there were a lot of uh, Nazi scientists and doctors mm-hmm. who, if they did not have to flee the country, um, if they if they were not, I mean, the ones who were not captured, if they didn't flee the country, sometimes they could hide within these sort of big companies yeah, that yeah. were maybe willing to look the other way at their past or maybe had some sympathetic maybe employers. They start, maybe, maybe they just, they're all of a sudden they're Doug Smithson, just a regular uh, well, I mean, Joe it, Lunchbox like you and I. It would probably still be a German name because we're still in Germany. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Doug sense. Smithson is a popular German name. No. I could be wrong. No, I got you though. I um, got you. I, so they're not hiding out in America. No, or Argentina or something. These yeah. are these were people who continued on working and living lives without without having to run, I guess. And there's and people there's, who I mean, this is not like there's people like uh Werner Braun, who is a you know, literal rocket scientist that we mm-hmm. like brought over who was absolutely a Nazi. And yes. I mean, I mean that, not, this is not, not just not, Germany or this company. There right. were lots of um Big companies, and especially in the scientific like pursuit, who were willing to, which I mean, I don't think you can ethically defend this at all, willing to look the other way on the fact that they were a Nazi, yeah, and employ them for their scientific knowledge. Um, so I definitely there has been a lot of um, ties. Like they have found that there were a lot of scientists working with this company who had the this background, who had that past. Um, but to focus on thalidomide, I just think I think that's an inter- I think that's an important part of the story because right. as we see what unfolds and how much damage is done before this drug is pulled from the market, I feel for me and my understanding of history that informs it somewhat. Um, huh. Why maybe people kept looking the other way or mm. ignoring what was right in front of them, right. um, considering the price that that might be paid if they were wrong. So the initial research in animals and humans seemed to show that it was safe. And it was marketed at first as like, this will be a good sleep aid. And pretty soon they figured out it was good for nausea. And that happens actually a lot with drugs where like, um, a good example of this is, you've probably heard of Wellbutrin. Mm-hmm. It's an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. It's how we, that's when it's, when it's Wellbutrin, that's how we market it. Is that the one's uh, smoking aid too? So after they started testing it for depression, they also found that people who took Wellbutrin tended to quit smoking more easily. Mm. So then they did more studies to prove that it could also help with smoking cessation and marketed it under the name Zyban. But it's the same thing. It's just an, a little yeah. marketing spin. I yeah, gotcha. exactly. It's just the same drug used for two different things. So they figured out that this was really good for nausea too. And uh, specifically for morning sickness. So the nausea of pregnancy. So as a result, thalidomide or contragan, as it was first branded, uh, was initially marketed very strongly to pregnant people Mm. for morning sickness. Um, And I think that uh, it's important to know, and this would be 1957, by the way. So it was released in 1956, and by 1957, it's being very heavily marketed for pregnant people to help with morning sickness. Um, other adults were taking it for sleep, and there were other side effects that we'll get to for them, but that specific indication was targeted right away. Now, 
This is where, depending on what stuff you read, you'll get a very different picture of like the milieu, the scientific milieu around this. So at that time, and the the, com- the drug company in court documents would argue this very, um, you know, adamantly. At that time, it was not it was not widely accepted that drugs could cross the placenta. So the idea that you could take a pill and it would affect the baby and it would affect the baby that was not well accepted. Now, to be fair, a, a figure that we're going to bring in at the end of this, Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey, had been involved in studies back in the 40s that proved that drugs did indeed cross the placenta. Mm. So some scientists knew. Right, right, right. But I think it is at least fair to say that it was still con- it was still a matter of contention. Do any drugs cross the placenta in any meaningful amount? Could it be possible that a pregnant person would take a pill and it could harm the developing fetus? Is that possible? Um, so uh, the drug company would argue that nobody knew this. Nobody believed this. Right, other shocking. other doctors would argue, well, I, I mean, yeah, some of us knew. Yeah, it was out there. Like, you could have figured this out. Um, the other thing is, while it's true that at the time, doing research in pregnant people was perhaps not the standard. Mm-hmm. Doing more testing in humans and considering the effects on, like, the reproductive system in general and and pregnancy and the and you know the pregnant state, all of that was part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the drug company again argued that like a lot of the testing they did was really just in rodents at first. There was very little human testing that was done before this drug was given to people. Mm. Um, And they argued that like, well, yeah, maybe we've changed that now because the court case would be a decade after all this. But we didn't know back then. We didn't do that back then. We didn't do that. That's not quite true either. There was a lot that they didn't do as they brought this to market Mm. that even at that point, even though it was early in the history of like pharmaceutical safety and monitoring, it probably was done. Um, Certainly not the standard we would hold it to today. Uh, But even by the the standards of the day, they probably, I mean, I think it is very fair to say, not probably, it's very fair to say that they weren't doing everything they should do. Mm -hmm. Um, All that being said, they were selling a ton of this stuff. It it really became a very popular drug very quickly, very much so in Germany, and I should say West Germany at the time. It was actually never approved in East Germany. Mm. Um, they didn't feel that there was enough. Uh, it did not fill an emergent need. And so since they hadn't done a lot of studies, it would have to sort of like we talk about um, medication. If it fills an urgent need, you can get an emergency use authorization. Right. That was kind of the way East Germany looked at it. Like, well... You haven't done enough research for us to approve it, and it's, and not, it, a it's not emergent. Yeah, yeah, so we're not with it. So it was never approved there, but it was in West Germany, and then all throughout Europe, it uh, was being sold. And a lot of the times, it was just being sold. By the way, not prescribed. Oh, in a lot of these places where Contragan was um, marketed, you could just walk in and buy it over the counter. And this is all still the original CIBA, the chemical industry. No, this is now Kimmy. Uh, what did I say? Their name is Gunin. Grunenthal. Ah, Grunenthal. Uh, got it. Grunenthal. Kimmy Grunenthal is, is the one pushing this out there. Um, so sales are increasing. Um, I mean, and at this point, the, the drug is incredibly popular. The, in West Germany, by 1960, they were uh, West Germans were consuming a million doses a day 
Yikes. Of thalidomide, which on is on average. On average, which is uh, a wild amount of this drug that was so being much. prescribed, right? So uh, as Contragan is sold in Europe and Germany, um, it is licensed and marketed in the UK, Australia, New Zealand as uh, Distaval. So this is like a fast rollout. They're pushing it, pushing mm-hmm. it out a lot of places. Yeah, this is all happening within about a two to three year period that, that all of this starts going. Um, because you'll see everything kind of falls apart by 61, and it started in 57. Okay. Um, marketing. As we'll see, some of the things they might have known before 57, but marketing. Um, in Canada, it was called Talamol. Um, and overall, 46 different countries would eventually wow. market and distribute this medication under different names um, throughout Japan, different parts of Africa. I mean, all over the world. Jeez. Now, part of why there wasn't immediate understanding of the risks of thalidomide were because of the way uh, that human pregnancy works, right? It's a 40-week process. It's so delayed. Yes, 40 weeks. Is this something that depending. you would take regularly, or was this like a as as, as it was an as needed? So, um, but I mean, it. Some people are probably popping a lot more. Some people mm-hmm. are popping a lot less. Okay. Well, and if you think about like, if you are someone who has a lot of morning sickness during your pregnancy, you might be taking quite a bit of this. And it's also at the very worst time in terms mm-hmm. of it being formative. Yes, yeah, because like, that was the most damage were the early trimesters. If you only took it in the third trimester, there, there's a chance you could have gotten away without any damage. Are but, there some that are there some drugs that you like are supposed to avoid in the first trimester that are mm-hmm. okay later on? Yep, yeah, that is that. There are definitely some that we know the biggest risks are while sort of all the if you just think about it from a very general perspective, while all the pieces are still being made. Yeah, and then by the third trimester, a lot of what's happening is just growth. Yeah. So there are things that would be more dangerous early on and safer in the third trimester, which it can be true about thalidomide. Although that being said, the recommendation, as you may imagine now, is do not take this drug in pregnancy, period. Make sure you are on a form of some sort of contra- – prevent pregnancy at all costs while you're on it. Oh, so we're – okay, you know what? You're getting ahead of yourself because I want to hear – Yes. Okay. Because um, – so it, it took a while. Um, there were some adults that had already started raising concerns, non-pregnant adults, mm-hmm. who were taking it for probably the sedative effect. And um, they there was a, a letter published suggesting that, like, there was some nerve damage that could be occurring. If you've heard of peripheral neuropathy, like nerve pain in your um, periphery, so hands and feet, mm-hmm. that there had been a lot of cases of that starting to be reported. So there was some concern about about that, like the U.S. started to be concerned about that, which we'll get into. That was a lot of what East Germany was concerned about. And in addition, pretty early you get some reports, scattered reports coming out of initially German hospitals, because West Germany is where it was being used the most, um, that there was something else wrong with thalidomide. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the pharmaceutical company, Kimi uh, Grunenthal's, one of their own chemists had actually given the given thalidomide to his wife while she was pregnant Mm -hmm. and uh, subsequently she gave birth to a child with some congenital syndromes so and there were multiple and so like one case like that perhaps that's not enough there were multiple cases though like that that were beginning to sort of pop up here and there um, that were that people were writing to the company doctors in Germany were reaching out to them as early as 1956, even before it was really mass marketed, like I said, it was released in 56, 57 was the big push. As early as 56, there were some reports on earth that 
people were writing them going, I think something's wrong. Um, there was a journalist who observed like two of his family members who so used the drug, the had some, yeah. had, had gave birth to children with some, some issues. But every time somebody reached out to the drug company with some concerns, their response was pretty much, huh, we've never heard that so before. Weird. Every time, yeah. no matter how many times they heard it, huh, we've never heard that. And so it wouldn't be until 1961 uh, that because of a couple of doctors, we finally figure out what's going on. And I want to tell you about that. But first, let's head to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although... There will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or clean up. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Are you feeling elevated levels of anxiety? 
Do you quake uncontrollably, even thinking about watching cable news? Do you have disturbing nightmares, only to realize it's two in the afternoon and you're up? If you've experienced one or more of these symptoms, you may have FNO, news overload. Fortunately, there's treatment. Hi, I'm Dave Holmes, host of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters helps fight FNO. That's because Troubled Waters stimulates your joy zone. On Troubled Waters, two comedians will battle one another for pop culture supremacy. So join me, Dave Holmes, for two, two, two doses of Troubled Waters a month. The cure for your news overload. Available on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Sid, the the cracks had begun to show in a pretty major way when we left for our foray into into crass commercialism. So in 1961 is when I I think there's been a critical mass of all these different reports that you start to get a lot of noise being made by the medical community. Um, First, uh, in November of 61, there's a German pediatrician, uh, Wiedekind Lenz, who kind of connects the dots and and puts together a lot of data showing that there are a large number of pregnancies where thalidomide is prescribed and then the babies all tend to have these same issues. And he was a geneticist, so he was seeing a lot of this. Like mm. for because when so the babies were born, lines. there was a thought that they might have some sort of genetic condition. He was the one being called to see and, and put it together. Um, and specifically, and to, I'm going to get into everything, but specifically the thing he kept getting called to see was uh, if a newborn had phocomelia, which is Greek for seal arms, but it's underdeveloped arms or legs. Um, which is because, if you're interested, thalidomide can interfere with the growth of blood vessels. And as the limbs are developing, obviously they need blood supply. So if the blood, ve- if the blood vessels cannot develop, then the limbs cannot develop. And... There was no known genetic syndrome that explained all of those, that specific constellation of symptoms. And he began to put together the thalidomide with that. He reached out to Grunenthal with concerns about the drug, uh, you know, in November. And within just a few days, actually, uh, Dr. William McBride, who was an Australian OBGYN, wrote a letter that was published in The Lancet. Very respectable. With Yeah, with very similar concerns. Um, one of his nurses, actually, Sister Sparrow, had raised the issue to him because she worked with different physicians. And only the – she noted that only the babies that he was delivering, that he had managed the pregnancies, were being born with these problems. He was the only one. He was the only one prescribing thalidomide. Mm. Yep. Um, and uh, it's – and I, I, I'm brushing over the – I want to get to another part of this story. But I should say, like – there are whole histories behind these other two, these two dudes I just mentioned. Like, they're both controversial figures. There's both a lot of other thi- – anyway. <laughs> you can't I, just say I that. Don't wanna, well, I don't want to get into, like um, – Dr. McBride kind of spent, like, I think a good bit of his career after that, it seems like, looking for something else like this, accusing other drugs of having problems, uh, and maybe some of them didn't. He's kind of a one-hit wonder. And I, <laughs> well, I mean – Recapture it, his former glory. Um, I, it, Dr. Lenz's father was a very prominent Nazi and, well, eugenics, I should say eugenics proponent. 
associated with the Nazi party. I think what Sydney is saying is, if you're wondering why we didn't park the car here in this paragraph and visit the the museums and statues dedicated to these people, it's because we're kind of driving by with a little bit of like, oh, kids, that's a complicated one. We don't really have. It's, it's not well, necessarily it, lauded as heroes. It really took me a long time to research this episode because I knew I knew the end thing that I wanted to tell you about, the part that I think is interesting and relevant to today and, and was a, a good story. Um, and as I was digging into this further and I started to find these, these very concerning connections about this pharmaceutical company and maybe there were Nazi scientists working there. And then I started reading about these other two guys and how, like, I mean, they did this good thing. I'm not saying that this wasn't good that they called attention to this because somebody needed to, but I don't know. That's history, though, right? Like, a lot of complicated figures. And if we're talking about the 1940s and 50s, a lot of, in medicine, a lot of, um, yeah. Moral moral quagmire, quandaries that we don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have the ability or, or bandwidth to... Sorry. I can't tell all these stories in one. I yes. do I do have a relevant story I want to get to, though. Okay. So anyway, with the issue raised, people all over began to put it together. Um, thalidomide seemed to cause, like I said, nerve damage in adults and then tragically more severe problems um, for the fetus if someone was pregnant while they were taking it. So it could cause uh, definitely miscarriages. There are a lot of cases, and that was probably why some of this wasn't caught, too, is that in many cases— Thalidomide didn't necessarily cause birth defects. It caused the pregnancy to end prematurely. So you necessarily. I mean, that happens. Mm-hmm. A tragedy that maybe you wouldn't necessarily like make the connection. It's not. It's not visible. It's not. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not such a like you were talking about. We didn't know what would cause this other thing. So yeah. like you'd go looking for a cause. So uh, the the severe uh, issues that could cause were like I said, focamelia, heart disease, blindness. There were different um, some specific malformations of the ear, um, internal organ damage, nerve damage. Um, overall, world worldwide, around a hundred thousand people were affected um, either because the pregnancy ended in a uh, spontaneous abortion or miscarriage is the colloquial term. Spontaneous abortion is the technical scientific term for that. Um, or through these sorts of congenital syndromes that that were developed. Um, it would take years for the drug to completely disappear from all the markets. There were a lot of places, like I said, where it was still being um, just sold over the counter Um and it would take a long time for the company first to stop marketing it and second for it to just completely vanish for them to like call all the doctors they'd given it to and tell them to destroy their samples and so on and so forth. Um, now, two codas that I want to kind of cover to this story are, um, first of all, as you can imagine, even after um, – you know, the the pharmaceutical company, Grunenthal, even after they pulled it from the shelves and told everybody not to take it and so on and so forth, um, there was a court case, of course. Yeah, right. Um, It was another thing that, like I said, secret documents were uncovered many decades later that sort of gave it a different light. It ended in a big settlement. Um, They weren't ever like, like they weren't held criminally liable. They just settled it. Um, by giving like a uh, hundred million um, of their currency at the time, I forget which one it would have been in. Um, but anyway, it, it would have been a hundred million is almost always a lot. It would have been equivalent to like twenty four, twenty four million 
U.S. dollars or something like that. So a lot of money. But it was for all. It was like a fund for everybody to like claim Uh, out of. So it ended up not actually being, I know it sounds like a lot of money. My point is that it wasn't sufficient. It it actually was not. They they got off pretty well with this is the point. All things considered. And especially since like it wasn't just about money. Although these families did need money because they needed money to help them take care of their children, you know, that lifelong issues that may arise. There was also the fact that this company, I mean, I think, you know, by today's standards, we could say acted with negligence. And so it's not just about paying for your misdeeds. It's about, can we trust you with continuing to make drugs? And I don't think they ever really had to deal with that question. Yeah, You know, they just paid a lot of money and moved on. Um, So, and, and it seems like with documents that have been uncovered since then, that perhaps there was like, a lot of backroom dealing with the government and stuff at the time to just make this go away, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, interestingly, I would say like the drug thalidomide has been found to have other uses since then, specifically for things like leprosy and multiple myeloma. This is what I was going to say. I didn't realize it's so it's still like mm-hmm. a going concern. But just obviously never, never for a pregnant person. Right. Obviously. Yeah. Um, and like, uh, if you look at, I've seen pictures of some of the pills of thalidomide since then where they have like, um, pictures of a pregnant person with like a line through it. Like on the pill? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You can find. Do they do that you. anywhere? Any, I've never heard of that before. Um, I, I have not seen it on a pill before, but, um, I was on Accutane when I had acne as a teenager and the, um, it was, it came in one of those punch out pill packs and every single. Oh, I'm looking at it. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. Yeah, every single punched out pill um, has a picture of a pregnant person and a line through it oh, on it. So wild. I have seen that before. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's interesting. I know that thalidomide can still can still be used. I certainly, let me say this, I have never used it. Um, it's got restricted distribution, but it is still listed as a, a treatment that you can use. Mm. So I have never... I have never done that, but I know that it is possible. It is never. Now, here's the here's the in, the other interesting part. Let me get to the, the other yes, story. I want to tell you because it's taken us a long time to get here. The other story is from the U.S. So I told you about all this that happened all over the world, and you may have noticed. I mean, we are in the U.S. Usually, I try to tell stories about the U.S. because that's the things I know. That's the things I learned most about. Why didn't this happen in the U.S. for the most part? Which I didn't even realize. Like, it was not – because I'd heard about it so much growing up. I didn't realize that it wasn't, like, anywhere near the sort of calamity it was globally. No. It was it was nowhere near um, the problem here that it was elsewhere. Now, there were 17 cases in the U.S. So it was – I am i don't want to – any suffering, especially that could have been pre- prevented with the proper protocols, is not okay. So I don't want to minimize that. 17 is 17 too many. But obviously we did not have – the the large numbers um, that they did in other countries. You may also be wondering, Justin Sydney, why is this a story that you sh- want to be talking about at this exact moment in history? <laughs> That's understandable. Uh, about the evils of you know big pharma pushing untested medicines on people without uh, any knowledge of the risk. Well, Sydney, tell them tell them why it's such a relevant story. So uh, I want to tell you about Doctor Francis Kathleen Oldham Kelsey. Uh, originally from Vancouver Island, born in 1914, studied in Chicago, the University of Chicago, and uh, went to medical school 
became an MD, became, a, I believe, like a general practitioner. So sort of like what I am, family doctor, mm-hmm. same idea. A little different now, but but same idea. And uh, the, the reason I want to tell you about her is because right before all this would happen, um, she had been appointed to the Food and Drug Administration, hired to work there. Um, and the first drug that came across her desk to review the application for was Kevadon. Hmm. So it just, you know, sometimes, it, this was September of 1960, by the way, if you need a timeline. <coughs> uh, if you'll remember at this point, by 1960, this drug was being widely used around the world. It had not taken hold in the U.S. yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and while there were scattered reports of concern, we didn't know we didn't know what it was yet. So the company that Justin told you about last week, Richards & Merrill, a pharmaceutical company out of Cincinnati, um, applied to the FDA – in 1960, to market thalidomide as Kevadon in the U.S. Um, again, for sleep, but also um, to be used for pregnant people who have morning sickness. The stuff that, and, and I should say, when they submitted their application, because it was already so widely used, the thought process was, this is just a formality. It's probably fine. This is just needs to be rubber stamped, get, you know, cut through the red tape, get through the bu- bureaucratic nonsense. Mm-hmm. And whoever this Dr. Kelsey is, get her to sign off on it, and we got we're going to make ourselves a ton of money. And it was not uncommon for the you know these drug manufacturers to lobby very hard directly at these FDA scientists and doctors. That was at the time that was very common. You know they submitted their application, and she looked it over and thought, I just don't think this is enough. You know it's funny she even at one point when. Because what she did was say, I need more information. I don't really think that this is enough for me to approve the drug. There's a lot you didn't include in terms of like studies and efficacy and safety mm-hmm. and toxicity and all these things. Um, and they were furious. They actually like called her boss and were like, uh, who's this lady? I think she is. She's telling us that our drug isn't good and, you know, get her fired or whatever. Um, and to to their, especially for the time, to their credit, they stood by her. As you can imagine, a female physician working in that position in 1960, it would have been very easy to just say, oh, yeah, this lady doesn't know what she's doing. She actually at one point had to run it by her husband, who was also a scientist. We do <laughs> that a lot in our house. <laughs> well, Pretty common. so that he could say, like, no, she's totally right. Like, it, in the initial application, they said stuff like this, drug has no toxic, no lethal dose. Well, <laughs> I mean, and he said that seems very like almost. I mean, yes, there are drugs that have incredibly high lethal doses, but it's very weird to say that there is no amount of this drug that you could take that would be dangerous, right? Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that they said were that she said was a lot more testimonial about the evidence they produced, not actual clinical studies to show that it worked, but just a lot of people took it and thought it was great. <laughs> so certainly, this is okay, right? Um, so she refused. They threw in some more information. She refused again. Threw, this would happen five times, by the way. Four times <laughs> she sent it back and refused. Um, yeah. The fifth time, as we'll get to, she didn't get to refuse that because they'll they'll actually withdraw their application before she gets the chance to refuse it a fifth time. But four times she did. And throughout this entire time, the drug company is getting furious. And they are writing and calling everybody they know in Washington, putting pressing as many levers as they can to put pressure on Dr. Kelsey to just let them get their drug out there. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. 
The Germans love it. The Brits love it. They love it in Australia. They love it in Japan, all over the con- all over the world. Like, what is wrong with you that you won't let us do this? Um, it was okay at the time, I should note, that even though it had not been approved by the FDA, it was okay back then for them to send out samples of it as like a pre-marketing thing to doctors in the mm, U.S. Right, right, right. So they sent out like around 1,200 to 1,200 doctors or so samples of thalidomide for them to give their pregnant patients to prevent morning sickness or to treat morning sickness, um, even though it had not been approved at this point. So uh, – she continues to say no. She continues to say no. She's concerned about um, the fact that she knows because she was involved in the early studies that show like, well, you know, some drugs do cross the placenta, actually. She already knows that. Um, she knows that they can affect uh, – that different drugs can affect pregnant people and fetuses differently than they do adults who are non-pregnant. Um, these are all bringing – these are all concerns. And then when the initial report from the British Medical Journal comes out about the peripheral neuropathy, she really starts to become concerned. So – Later in 1961, when we start to get all this information from the other two doctors I mentioned uh, in Germany and in Australia, then Dr. Kelsey is really concerned. Right. Um, so at that point, uh, it, you know, the, Richardson Merrill had, had once more put in an application. By early 1962, they withdraw this last application to the FDA because they've realized that, you know— it, we we do have a problem. This drug is an issue. We've got to change course. Um, but because of that, the only reason we didn't have this giant problem with thalidomide in the United States that they did in so many other countries is because of Dr. Kelsey, because she rigorously adhered to the process, to the scientific method, to data. I need data. This isn't about politics. This isn't about personal opinion. It's that you have to prove these certain things, and then once – because even in 1961, even in 1960, 1961, 1962, the years that this was going on, even then, we already had some of these protections in place. Now, because of Dr. Kelsey um, – there would be a lot more protections put in place because, like I said, the only uh, children who were harmed in the United States by these drugs were uh, – I told you that they were allowed to send out those samples. Mm-hmm. Those were the only cases that people were able to access this drug, um, which, you know, obviously you can't do today. Thank right. goodness. Um, but because of this, she would be awarded uh, by President John F. Kennedy in 1962 the Distinguished Federal Civilian President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service, um, which is like the highest honor a civilian can get in the U.S. Um, and since and, – and that very year, 1962, they um, made the FDA even stronger than it already was, put in all kinds of new protections. In the years that followed, a lot more of these sort of loopholes that Richardson Merrill was attempting to pass through, that Dr. Kelsey stopped them, um, were closed. And that is why the process is as rigorous as it is today and why – when something like the COVID-19 vaccines make their way through the process and are given emergency use authorization. And I think by the time this podcast airs, at least the Pfizer will have full FDA approval. I don't know that for sure, but based on what we know so far, Some it looks- inside sources. No, based on all the news, <laughs> all the news articles that have come out about it, I think that this will be true. Um, but that is why it is so safe is because we've been there, is because we've seen what happens when you don't follow science, when you don't look to clinical studies, when you don't do all that stuff, and why we won't repeat it again because we've made that mistake before. 
and we have laws put in place and people who learned from this and watched this and saw Dr. Kelsey do it and were inspired and moved to do the same thing. Want to hear uh, two quick fun facts about Dr. Kelsey? Yeah. Uh, the first is she continued to work at the FDA until she was 90 years old and uh, lived another 11 years after that, lived to be 101 years old. The other thing that I think is interesting that I stumbled on when I was first looking into this, uh, she did her um, undergrad work and then her master's, and then there was a uh, a fellow named Geiling, EMK Geiling, who was a doctor who was starting up a, um, a new research uh, pharmacology research department in the University of Chicago, and she applied to do her um, postgraduate work there. Um, when he got the application, is this true? I didn't know if this anecdote was true. I mean, it looks. I offered. I did. Did it not look true to you? It looked re- real tell, to me. Tell the anecdote. Okay, this man. It looked. See, this is from the account of the guy that that okay, was okay. there with I, him. I was looking for a corroborating source. So well, see, I trust I, you. I I shouldn't see. This is what Sydney read the same thing, but her. Uh, uh, maybe she, it doesn't pass the muster. It's a good story, regardless. Yeah, tell the gonna, story, and we'll say it might be apocryphal. The um, uh, this guy, like this this dude that got the application, w- was confused about the fact that F R A N C E S is traditionally uh, a, a female name versus a, a male and with I S with I S, and he addressed uh, Doctor Kelsey as uh, a male in his like acceptance letter. And she wondered to her sort of mentor that encouraged her to apply in the first place, like, should I, like, correct this cat? He's like, no, you should sign and go work there. But there's a direct line. The work that she was doing with Guiling was, like, got into, like, work on um, birth Specifically like, crossing specifically, the placenta. Right. That specifically, was- it got her into this path. Like, it's only – and her being in the path of this saved, you know – who knows how many lives? Yeah, it, it, another it really person is, might not have done it. It's really fascinating when you Draw see the claims that the pharmaceutical company that Grunenthal was making in Germany that allowed them to sort of skate past that weren't necessarily true, and that Dr. Kelsey had done the research specifically to know why those claims were false and why there was more to it. She'd actually been working on a, like a malaria drug. A mm-hmm. lot of docs were at the time. That was a, that was the most common thing, and um, there was a, a sort of quinine like medication, and she w- she knew what it did when it crossed the placenta and like the effect that it had on rats that weren't and were pregnant and all this stuff. So um, her research had set her up to be the perfect person to take this very like run of the mill, just rubber stamp it, run it on through drug application and say, wait a second, something's wrong. And also I think like besides the fact that she had that knowledge base, she was a person who believed in doing things in science the appropriate way. We have a scientific method. There's a reason we have these protections in place. There's a reason we do it. And while a lot of the time science can give us a good clue about what's going to happen, sometimes unexpected things, like with thalidomide, can happen. And if we do those those proper testings and put those protocols in place ahead of time, then we avert tragedy, which is, again, what we've seen with the vaccines that have been approved, that have been that have been granted emergency use authorization. They are, because they went through all the proper testing, all the proper protocols, they are incredibly effective, incredibly safe, and the best tool we have to fight COVID-19. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We want to encourage you, you know, because we haven't done it in a while. Give 
vaccinated if you haven't. It's fun and easy and free. And remind people that it is free. Even it's if they free. ask about your insurance information, it's just so they can charge your money grubbing monstrous insurance company. Instead of the government Instead or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But you don't pay a penny. It's it's free. It's free. It's free. Please encourage people around you to get vaccinated. Please have those conversations. Uh, they're hard, but you're more likely as a as a friend or a relative, as a trusted companion to convince somebody than I am as a faceless podcast voice. Mm-hmm. So really um, have those conversations. Please um, when you're in, please please wear your mask, mm-hmm. especially if you're in school or sending a child to school. I would encourage masking. Pediatric hospitalizations are up. Pediatric cases are up. Kids under 12 can't get vaccinated. Our best tool for them right now is a mask. Oh, there's some been some talk about boosters, too. Fouch says don't get your booster early, for whatever that's worth. I think the big thing is, like, we have a real problem worldwide with vaccine equity right now. And if it is in all of our best interest, not just because, like, be a decent person, everybody deserves a chance to get vaccinated, but um, it is in all our best interest to vaccinate as many people as possible, as quickly as possible worldwide, not just in the U.S., um, to stop the variants mm-hmm. from evolving as fast. That is in all of our best interest. Yes. Variants are only fun when they're on Loki. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We got merchandise at McElroyMerch.com. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We really are happy to have you. Uh, th- oh, thanks to taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the Intro and Outro World Program. That's going to do it for us this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.